0: Hey up, how you doing? It's Matt and you're listening to episode 25 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. My podcast where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thank you for listening to the show and I hope you enjoy it. So this time around I've got a really great and dare I say it vital conversation with Hugo Taghome. So Hugo is Chief Executive of Surfers Against Sewage the marine conservation charity who've done so much to improve water quality in the UK and around the world in the last two decades. Surfers Against Sewage started as a single issue pressure group back in the 90s, concerned with cleaning up the sea and dealing with the issue of sewage that was blighting so much of the UK coastline and obviously coastlines around the world. And today, as Hugo explains during our conversation, they've diversified into one of the country's best loved marine conservation charities, fighting campaigns on a number of fronts, and foremost of these today is the issue of single-use plastic, which you're going to hear quite a lot about in this podcast. So I recorded this one in August 2017 at the SAS HQ in St. Agnes, and as you probably gathered, I held it back. So why did I hold it back? Well, as you'll hear, it's a brilliant conversation, this one, and when I first listened back to it, I almost thought it was a bit of a waste not putting it in front of as large an audience as possible because um, Hugo's such an impressive speaker and what he's talking about is of such high importance, really, uh, as I think you'll agree once you listen to it. And I knew I had Mick Fanning coming up and I knew I had Travis Rice. So I basically thought I'd wait until those were out and um, listenership had increased a little bit so that Hugo could be heard by as many people as possible. Because make no mistake, the work that SAS are doing really is of vital importance. And in Hugo, they've got an incredibly articulate and passionate advocate and leader. I'm pretty certain by the end of this chat, you'll be rethinking your relationship with plastic because the numbers that um, he quotes are truly horrifying. And in trying to stem this tide, Hugo and SAS, and I should mention other people like Tim Nunn of this plastic project, have set themselves a truly Herculean task. But what's impressive about this conversation is how completely compelling and persuasive Hugo is on the power of small changes and how positive affirmative action can make a difference. The other thing to say about Hugo is the sheer amount of energy he possesses, which I think will leap out of the headphones, and how he harnesses it for good on uh, a lot of different levels. This is a man who, when he isn't tirelessly driving forward, one of the country's foremost marine conservation charities, is coaching his son's football team, the mighty Truro Tiger Sharks. He's a formidable presence, basically, and if you can detect a little bit of a man crush from this glowing introduction, then you'd be correct, and I'm quite happy to own up to that. So yeah, fascinating, inspiring, and important conversation, this one, and I really hope you enjoy it, so I'm going to get straight to it. Here it is: my conversation with the Surfers Against Sewage Chief Executive Hugo Tagholm. Enjoy. How how do you actually say your last name? Tagholm. Tagholm. Danish by origin that is. Danish. Yeah. Okay. Right.
1: A little, there's a little island off Denmark called Romo, and there's a, a village there called Tagholm And my ancestors, my family originates from there.
0: Oh really? Yeah. So have you traced
1: the Well, I didn't. My my grandfather did, yeah. So they're they're apparently sort of old old school whalers, basically. So I figure I'm sort of making amends for the the, the past sins of my,
0: my family. Wow, maybe. that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Really? So that's that was the family business. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's a family business, but definitely connection. So yeah. Right. Okay um so we're here at surfers again sewage hq in st agnes yeah yep um and you are fresh off the plane really aren't you from is it california you've you've just yeah, i've been just in...
1: come back from flown back from la i was in southern california in san clemente okay <clears throat> i was uh Meeting up with the Surf Rider Foundation and we're a beneficiary too of the Surf Industry Manufacturers Association's uh, Waterman's Ball, their Waterman's Weekend, which is their environmental fundraiser. So we're one of about 15 um, charities, NGOs around the world that receive um, support from the industry through that event. It raises hundreds of thousands of dollars each year to distribute amongst different sort of enviro-surf groups largely. Okay, Um, We're the only European one. Um, so that's that's good for SAS it's always good to be there yeah. to wave the flag for the UK wave the flag for what we're doing and to connect with lots of you know great surfers you know Greg Long Bethany Hamilton Jerry Lopez all sorts of people I saw yeah there. I saw so a picture of you with Jerry Lopez actually yeah pretty pretty cool guru really isn't he? yeah so, right definitely uh, that was a, that was an honour so I feel honoured to, to be able to take SAS to places like that these days um, yeah and clearly our campaigns resonate around the world and we're seen as a an exemplar in the enviro surf sort of world which is which is great so who organizes that event then what? well it is sema surf industry manufacturers association so they bring together all of the sort of leading brands within the surf industry um there is a european equivalent too but they do the, the sort of main hq out there and it's a big uh, sort of black tie do on the on a golf course in laguna beach in really? california so good day yeah always a good do yeah um you know always a, a few beers a good bit of chit chat some nice awards um and uh yeah we were we' were always privileged to be there so yeah it's a very nice part of my my job Sema support us you know every year with a a good donation to to help us progress the campaigns to protect our beaches for everyone so right it's really cool yeah and you got a few waves i got some great waves, yeah. yeah where'd you um, surf? I surfed at a place above LA called Zeros, a left-hand point break. Um, really, really fun, just overhead, long reeling waves, not too many people in. Nice. So i got a few nice set waves. Uh, I surfed in Laguna Beach. I surfed at T Street down in San Clemente a fair bit. I nice. surfed at Trestles, okay. not great Trestles, down at Churches, but still good fun.
0: Yeah, okay. So, yeah. So that kind of traveling and that kind of flag waving for the for the organization, is that a large part of your job?
1: It's a, a bigger and bigger part of my job to travel. Um, we're based in Cornwall, where we've always been based, here in St. Agnes. Uh, we, were, we were born and raised in this part of the world. Yeah, was it
0: Parinporth? Uh
1: Well, it was actually Portown Port Tawon that Town. we originated from. Okay. And um, it was here that, you know, surfers first rose up against that first single issue of sewage um and Cornwall's an amazing place to be based for the waves for nature for connection with the environment for what we do and for what we love as as individuals within the the charity and as our supporters love but there's one thing that doesn't really happen in in Cornwall and that's much sort of business to make make things happen so I have to travel a lot to London to other cities to raise um or or generate the projects and raise the income to to do what we do around the coastline. Okay, Um, so
0: it perhaps would help if you actually explained what your your role officially is then?
1: Well, I'm officially chief executive, which is a, a grand title, but the sort of right title and in some ways, that's a jack-of-all-trades. Um, I do all sorts, from media interviews through to fundraising, obviously HR and running the business. But the main thing is is the strategic direction of the organisation. Okay. I took over in 2008, but I've been involved with SAS since way back in 91, in some way yeah, or other.
0: you started as an activist, right? So, yeah,
1: I started... Well, I actually started by entering their Surf to Save competition in Paul's Eth okay. in Cornwall. And um, I... Uh, I first met some of the founding members there and my journey started as an activist, as a member, as a regional rep and a trustee. Um, And that was very much through that first sort of part of SAS, the single issue campaigning on sewage disposal in the sea, which we've been part of the great success story around the UK. There's still ongoing problems with sewage in some places, but the the stats speak for themselves. We've gone from what would have been 27% of our beaches passing the minimum EU standards now to about 98% of our beaches. So a really big bit of progress. More work to be done on things like combined sewer overflows But still, we've made great progress. And so we've diversified as an organisation and I've sort of led the charge on looking at the new issues, um, whether that's promoting and protecting surf spots specifically or now the huge issue of single use plastics, uh, which are in every part of our oceans and on every beach. And I don't doubt that every listener will know that or have seen plastics on the beach you can't you can't help but notice them so it's a really big issue and something we can all take action on so we've grown from this single issue pressure group much loved one that brought me into the as it were environmental campaigning sphere into one of the country's best recognized marine conservation charities we've gone from in 2008 when i started Maybe we worked with 500 volunteers every year. This year we'll be mobilizing about 25,000 volunteers who together will contribute about 10 million minutes of volunteering time to our beaches. Wow we've um grown and what kind of work are they doing then so of course they do beach (laughs) cleans um so you know lots of beach cleaners wanted to come and take plastic directly off the beach they'll be getting involved in campaigns on plastics um creating sort of plastic free communities with us they'll be helping with um campaigning events in london you know lobbies in westminster they'll be coming to various actions around the coastline education events festivals so they all have different skill sets our volunteers and they all sort of interface with us in different ways. We've got a rich and diverse community, but the, the common theme with all of them is that they sort of live and breathe the sea. Yeah. We're not um, desk-bound, desk-bound sort of um, charity professionals. We're people who who do live and breathe the the sea and get in the sea as much as we can and that applies to our members too so we often describe them as the canary in the coal mine themselves because they walk across the tide lines that are strewn with litter they surf in places that can be polluted they see the developments that are affecting their coastline They've got concerns about consumption, about climate change, all sorts of things. And they're the people who can truly be the the voice of protecting our oceans.
0: Which was the heritage of the organisation originally, right? Because as you said, it was a few individuals really, wasn't it, that that started this. So who, who were the early drivers of Surfers Against Sewage? Here are well, the people behind it. The,
1: the, the most well-known, really, of them all is Chris Hines. Um, so he was the face of SAS for the nineties, pretty much. He was the director over that period of time, and he really led the charge. He's a very passionate campaigner. Still campaigns today on sort of lots of different issues, um, and very much a sustainability in in his sort of core DNA. And so he was—he was the sort of figurehead, really, and he was who I met back at Surf to Save in in 1991 up at Bolzeth. Um, so yeah, he's an inspirational character, um, and then lots of the sort of. The, the, the emerging surf community at the time you know were, were, were interested and engaged with SAS and that remains to this day we as you say we still have that heritage it's it's about the ocean being in the organization's DNA it's about people being truly inspired by that visceral connection with with their beach and that drives a, a true sort of passion and that probably means that we can also pack a punch above our weight grading really Yeah, because it it rings true through the the media it rings true with the politicians and the people who can actually create say new legislation to protect our coastline because they really hear it and people can always hear when something is 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 real and true
0: well one of the things that surfers against sewage has always been really well known for and really good at is is the tactics isn't it like the way that you get these these stories across and the way that you you know that are, that are often quite uncomfortable truths. You know, yeah. and and that that are not the easiest stories to tell to a big audience. But Surface Against Sewage has always been really, really good at that. Was that also something that was in the DNA of the company from the beginning, of the charity from the beginning? Yeah, I think always. I mean,
1: as the first issue of our membership magazine um, sort of attested to. I mean, then it was you know one of the things was that we were a single issue pressure group working on marine sewage disposal, but. It had been established at that time that one of the best ways to create the impact was through stunts. And that was, I could grab a copy now, you could see those words. And it was about those those visual campaigning stunts that would grab the media attention, that would fuse what at the time was quite a fringe group of of quite cool people, the surfers, with a a really big issue on our coastline into some, some quite punchy sort of, actions in Westminster, the old surfers with gas masks and surfboards and inflatable turds marching on the streets of London. And of course, we've had to evolve that imagery. We've had to bring new things in. We've just released our, our Wasteland campaign, which has equally got that sort of tone to it, a very punchy, a very, um, a very attention-grabbing piece of content that really goes straight for the jugular. And I think as an organization we've always been able to say things in, in ways that many other people haven't been able to, in slightly more risque ways, in slightly more controversial ways, whilst also maintaining the science behind our calls, our science behind our campaigns, and uh, creating engagement with not just individuals, but with companies and governments, whether the UK government or, you know, the, the European sort of counterparts in Brussels.
0: Or the water companies or, or yeah. vested interests, basically. That, yeah. that aren't the easiest people to communicate communicate with on these issues right so and
1: so we're you know we're proud with progress you know we do it all still on a a, on a relative shoestring so so yeah we've got a a team of 12 down here we've now got 125 regional reps around the country thousands of volunteers we've got our own group of MPs amazingly in parliament the protect our waves all-party parliamentary group who who sort of have to sit down with us um, every few months to talk about what we want to see in terms of changes for the coastline be that the ongoing water quality problems or soon We're holding a big event on plastic pollution, which um, we're very pleased to see a lot of engagement on at the moment at political level, particularly on things like plastic bottles and plastic bags. So that is definitely our number one issue now: plastic pollution. Yeah, it is. It is the new sewage, effectively. Yeah, still got water quality issues. It's in the DNA of the organisation, but it's it's true to say that that as a national campaign people don't feel the water quality issues everywhere as they did in the 1990s yeah. there's been a lot of investment we need to see the same type of investment and outrage in and around plastic on our coastline it's not acceptable that we walk across tide lines that are absolutely filled with plastic and our oceans are filled with plastic it's I would say an even bigger danger to our oceans than sewage ever was back in the 1990s.
0: Could you, could you get across some scale of the problem? I mean I'm sure you've got you've got numbers. Well yeah, there's know.
1: huge numbers. I mean eight million individual pieces of plastic going into our oceans each and every day. We're consuming a million a million bottles globally every minute, I believe. you know in this country alone we consume 38 and a half million bottles. Um, every single day, only half of those are recycled. The rest end up in our oceans, in our countryside, in landfill. You know, it's, it's, it's not good enough. And so the convenience of today, which plastics basically largely are single-use plastics, the convenience of today is basically selling off the future. We're basically selling it off so we can get that cappuccino, get that water, get that, that consumable much more easily but it's all at the expense of the future. So, you know, we're just trading one, one sort of bit of comfort for a bit of, or much more discomfort later.
0: I mean, are you up against similar vested interests in this fight? Because I know that a lot of the campaigning is about like a consumer level use. Yeah. Um, and about like how people can can change their habits to affect the, the outcome. Yeah. But. I'm, I'm assuming there's actually like a, a fair. Well, you know the numbers you're quoting are actually quite eye-watering, aren't they? So mm-hmm. clearly there's an industry behind this, in the same way that when you fought against the sewage issue, there was there was water companies, and vested interests, as we said yeah. earlier. So how do you approach it at that level? Like, how can you change it at that level? Like... At the, With the vested interest. Yeah. On this issue, I mean.
1: Well, I mean, from the inside out, it's, it's more complicated than the sewage issue because, you know, you had effectively 10 companies um, in 1990 after the water companies had been privatised. Yeah. They all had their assets, their pipes going out and the sewage that they... or the, the, the effluent they needed to treat. And there, were, there was a clear system and method to do that. You know, now we've got plastic escaping from multiple sources... Um, it's not just litter bugs as, as some big companies want to portray it as. It's not just people dropping this litter, it's escaping from our bins. Every system that we've created has not kept pace with the amount of plastic that has been created. So if you think about it, when we were kids, um, that's some, you know, 40 years ago <laughs> for me, I mean. um, you know, there, were, there was no Costa Coffee, there was no Starbucks, there was no major
0: addiction to coffee full stop there was um, no bananas in plastic boxes none of that Yeah,
1: and so we um, have seen an explosion in the use of single use plastics for packaging but yet the bin in your park is probably the same bin as when you were growing up yeah. same size same scale same position Pretty much the same. So we haven't really kept pace. The systems of, of recycling, of, of waste disposal, we're still using the old, antiquated method of burying stuff in the ground to get rid of all of this, this packaging, which effectively is a vital resource. This plastic is oil that's been pumped out of the ground from, from you know, some far flung place. It's it's ludicrous that we'd use it for a few seconds for a straw or for a, a bottle um, of very expensive water that you could actually get from a drinking fountain, which also seemed to be much more prevalent as a as a kid um ironically so um so the the the, the complication is, is there's many more stakeholders now so many industries using plastic we all as consumers uh, are often forced to use plastic because we're we're a, a trapped um a trapped market so we might be on a train we might be traveling we might not have all of the convenience we may not have a refill place you may be on a, a great western train where they won't refill your coffee cup because of health and safety policy so there's lots of barriers to us as consumers but we can all start to make a difference in our plastic footprint by the choices we make and we can also work with business to take them on the journey with us so we'll work with people who who are interested in reducing their plastic footprint um, and we can take them on a journey that's incremental so step by step offer refill services, offer discounts on coffee cups, get rid of this plastic bag, get rid of that plastic bag, and look to minimise a company's plastic footprint. So I think it's there's lots of tools in the toolkit. And then there's a governmental level. So we were instrumental in the five pence plastic bag charge. We've just seen the recent results saying that six billion fewer plastic bags have been given out as a result. And that's an amazing victory for the environment. So legislation is really... Is, is where the big win is We're now looking for that on deposit return systems on plastic bottles um, we're we're moving very, Very positively towards that, that could take us from recycling just over 50% to us recycling 100% of plastic bottles pretty much, which would be amazing. When we see 200 for every mile of coastline surveyed, we know there's a a big problem. We recently used some of the 50,000 bottles we've collected from Beach Cleans nationwide to build a huge plastic bottle battleship as part of our new wasteland campaign so it's a really big issue we want to show the scale of that but there are solutions at hand we created plastic as a society we've got the ability to to phase it out and trap it in the economy where necessary rather than let it escape into the environment so so it's a
0: it's a big (coughs) issue but one that's very complicated is there an appetite for that kind of legislative change at the government level do you think do you think that's a, a short term or a long term victory?
1: Uh, there is an appetite, yeah. And I think what, what really happens with all of these things is I think there's a sort of a moral outrage that, that builds in society. You sort of, you, we saw it with smoking, you know, it gets. You know, the health evidence comes out. It's denied. It's the campaign continues. Yeah. You know, people belts. are upset on lots of different fronts, and it culminates with then legislation being passed. Of you can't smoke indoors anymore. People thinking it's going to be the end of pubs, end of everything, yeah. and then people going, "How the hell did we ever smoke inside before?" Yeah. And actually, I think we're starting to see that that momentum build about the moral outrage. Is it right? When you get your fast food that within five minutes of scoffing your sandwich, having your, you know, whatever you have for lunch, and then you look at the table and it's there's a whole trail of plastic waste that will never be recycled, that will get put in the ground and stay there for hundreds of years for that convenience you had. And I think people will start to really push back against that. And I think that's right. And I think companies will respond with more sustainable packaging anyway. So it's not the product's. people don't want they want the sandwich they want the drink but the packaging is something that no one wants not even the company wants it because they still don't have a responsibility of the full life cycle of that packaging so i think we are seeing that that tipping you know that sort of tipping point coming now it's certainly changed in the 10 years i've been here no one was interested in really supporting our plastic pollution work back then now it's absolutely the number one issue that we're working on. You know, we still carry on on climate change and water quality and coastal development and protecting waves, but this is the area that everyone is interested in. And governmentally, it's 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 the biggest sort of debated point in our all-party parliamentary group. Um, our chair, Steve Double MP, who's the MP for this sort of area, or for St Austell and Newquay. Um, is, is asking questions in parliament on our behalf on plastic bottle um, pollution on our beaches. Um, we've got Caroline Lucas, the head of the Green Party, who has supported our message in a bottle campaign. Now one of the biggest cam- campaign petitions on plastic pollution in the country. Almost 250,000 people have signed that. So we're seeing, we're seeing change. You know, it's never as quick as people want, particularly as people want through social media, which is <laughs> they click like, things <clears> get changed. You know, it just doesn't happen like that. So for me, leading SAS, it's about creating not just sustainability campaigns, but sustaining those campaigns financially and with good interest over a long period of time, sufficient enough to deliver the change that we want to see. And it could be that I don't see all of the change I want to see in the time that I'm here, however long that will or won't be, but you just got to have the courage of your convictions and you've got to do everything you can to keep moving
0: towards the tipping point. You mentioned some of the other issues. Um, you mentioned climate change. Yep. Um, what work are you doing in that area? We work, because we haven't got all of the scientific
1: expertise here, what we do is we work with the, um, the Climate Coalition out of London Um, so they're a coalition of hundreds of charities both environmental and uh, and sort of development humanitarian charities all connecting on the issue of climate change and they tend to organise moments and campaigns where we all connect in and around Westminster to lobby MPs together so we've been at the forefront of marches um, across Westminster we're often put alongside the Women's Institute it tends to be the Women's Institute and Surfers Against Sewage stood next to each other us with (laughs) wetsuits and surfboards and then you know them in, in i can't think of what their 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 attire would normally be but but um but we uh we are part of that 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 growing effort and sort of profile on climate change which is weirdly one of the issues i recently compared plastic pollution to um in that climate change is, is, a, is a bigger threat we, we accept that at this stage but climate change effectively can be regulated by nature Trees can absorb carbon dioxide, nature can absorb the, the gases, and the, the world could regulate itself. But with plastic pollution, we can't. You know, plastic will accumulate in the environment, it will carry on getting into smaller and smaller pieces, it will get into our food chain, it will poison the very water and even the air that we're breathing, because of the small particles of plastic. So I sort of compared its threat to, to climate change, which, uh, which I think is right and was one that the media definitely picked up on.
0: Well, how do you respond to people that still basically won't accept it?
1: Climate change. Yeah. Um, I would say go back and look at the science. Go back and look at the consensus amongst the leading scientists. And if you're more qualified than them, as that person rejecting the science, then so be it. But I'm not sure I've come across any of the, the naysayers, as it were, who are actually qualified to, to make a, a judgment. And it's one of the things I think we see more and more in this in this digital age, this social media age, that people assume that their opinion is fact and it is is qualified alongside the people who have got the experience to, you know, to to actually make a, a proper judgment. The post fact era, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. It often seems to be an ideological stance, though, more than anything, when people refuse to get behind the, the obviousness of climate change. Is that something that you found?
1: Um, i think that there are a lot of people um who feel that climate change is a threat to the way, that, that accepting climate change is a threat to the way that we live and we're engineered as a society by accepting it you basically say you can't we need carry to carry on yeah and um i think that's the the wrong. wrong interpretation of it i think that innovation you know people should be be supporting the agenda of renewable energy of um of you know new technology that can minimize our carbon emissions um, and be trying to reject you know basically burning more fossil fuels by and large because technology is coming on a pace i often refer to you know, our mobile phones, you know, as we, as a kid, I refer back to that in some, whatever, 40 years ago, you know, the notion that we'd all have a phone in our pocket, that we could do a FaceTime with our family across the other side of the world, um, send science, emails, science fiction, buy anything we wanted. It's beyond Star Wars, isn't it? Yeah. It makes r2d2 projecting layer looked like a bit of yeah. old technology
0: like a little watch with the face on sort of thing you know yeah yeah and
1: so i'm you know i i i, I don't think people should be over saying technology will just fix everything so we can carry on but what they should do is they should be adapting whilst technology is also evolving so we're doing we're, we're trying at every level individual community and um and and trying to drive governments to do the right thing
0: yeah how yeah, I I I do it just seems it always sort of struck me as a very strange sort of um way of looking at it people when people do see like see it as a threat and not an opportunity. I mean, do you, do you have tactics that you guys use to to try and educate people in a different way? Is that yeah, is that we, a large part of what you're doing with the climate change agenda, if you like?
1: Yeah, I I mean we we did a report in 2007 8 um, the sort of surfer's perspective on climate change. So how you know it's not you know it's not as it were global warming for the UK. It's from a UK perspective. So it's not board shorts and tropical waters. It's yeah. actually more unpredictable storms during the summertime, which will make it more difficult to surf. You know, good good waves. Mm-hmm. it it will be more rainfall heavy sort of tropical like rainfall which will then put more sewage in the sea it could be sea level rise which then will mean that the low tide sort of reef breaks may not work so it's contextualizing it so actually putting it in the in the language and as you say contextualizing it for surfers is you know important thing not that we're just talking to surfers and then you know we at that stage obviously have the day-to-day things people can do think about their energy supply think about lights that don't put, you know, use much energy, whatever appliances you've got and trying to make the right choices is an important thing people can do. Of course, as surfers... The elephant in the room is everyone travels. Yeah. Everyone uses a lot of, you know, resources made out of petrochemicals. What you know, what can you do? And I think, you know, maybe. Well, that using... was going
0: to be one of the questions I was going to ask you. Actually, you know, what 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 would you say people can do? You well, know, how do you square those those contradictions?
1: Well, I think it's difficult. I mean, first of all, I would say that just because. You know, so, so let's take a food example. You know, if you go out and have a, you know, a, a bad burger and chips and a, a milkshake and feel unhealthy, it doesn't mean just because you feel a bit unhealthy that then you go and have to have more. And keep laying on more and more of that, and the same could be applied to you know what we 're consuming so try and think about wherever you can make a choice you know maybe you can get an eco surfboard maybe you can get something that's shaped more locally that hasn 't got some air miles in it maybe you can choose one of the more sustainable wetsuits you know from one of the brands that's either building for more durability or maybe from one of the brands that's looking at the new um, plant based neoprene technology so you 're looking at some way of, of making your consumer Pound, go a bit further
0: and make the influence you want it to make. To support those statements yeah. and to support those initiatives.
1: So you can do those, you know, you can do those things, make your stuff go a bit longer. Do you really need that new board? Um, wetsuits probably wear out qu- maybe quicker than than boards for most, but, you know, often boards you may be able to squeeze just as many good surfs out of as a, as a, a brand new one just feels feels. Nice to have a new one under your feet. I yeah,
0: know. exactly. I mean, that's that's the the challenge of consumerism, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, we are constantly sold things that we yeah. don't need, and that's the the basis of it, isn't it? And absolutely, even on that level, I guess you, 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 it's asking people to to consciously not do that, not yeah. to buy into that. But it's actually quite a difficult thing, isn't yeah. it?
1: Eat, you know, eat, um, you know, eating um, sort of, you know, local stuff, making good choices on your food. Um, uh you can definitely on the plastics front make lots of decisions about not having a straw taking your own water bottle not accepting plastic bags not using maybe single-use plastic razors you know all sorts of things that can reduce you know not only your plastic footprint but be helpful in terms of you know oil consumption and production and manufacture which is also driving climate change don't forget think about the journeys you're taking of course i've just flown back from from california from a work perspective which i would sort of you know always i mean it's sort of a a necessary evil unfortunately of this this of any job these days a lot of travel but um see what you can do about going to places and staying longer offsetting your flight where you do have to fly those sorts of elements um so yeah it's a big elephant in the room but There's not many surfers I know who just want to surf the one spot that's (laughs) the closest to them and...
0: Well, and again, they're getting sold the lifestyle that involves travel. You know, you need yeah. to travel to a place where it's better. Yeah. And, you know, where you're where going you to have a better experience. Yeah. You know, that's the basis of that industry, isn't it? Yeah.
1: When I mean, you look out to places like on the west coast of Ireland to Fergal Smith and, and what those guys are doing and really living sustainably off the land and deciding not to travel at all and really trying to minimize their own footprint it's a big consumption. big statement. That, that is a huge statement and they're probably the biggest exemplar of, of going, right, let's, let's let's create the camp we want and create the lifestyle we want and really make the the big the big choices um and that's pretty impressive stuff
0: um well i think it'd be really interesting to talk a bit more about your um personal sort of journey yeah hateful phrase but i'm going to use it yeah um to get where you are so i've seen your you know i've seen your ted talk yeah which and i will post that and you do cover your your childhood a little bit but it'd be good to hear a little bit about that because it sounds like this consciousness and this interest was something that was present from a very early age really is that fair to say
1: absolutely i think i was always i would describe myself as a a sort of a nature enthusiast like before a surfer in many ways I, i just loved the the natural world and i'm fascinated by all sort of animals around me where did you grow up in actually in north london okay I grew up in Muswell Hill. Right, I of didn't know places. that. Right, and I had a big, um, a big plot of wild land at the end of our garden with a huge pond in it, and no one used to go onto this land. Right, and I sort of commandeered it as
0: my own. Classic bit of like inner city scrubland kind of a- thing. Absolutely, but
1: yeah. but with a, a, a big pond and yeah, an old dilapidated shed, I used to catch animals down there. I used to hang out down there. Right, it was a cool place. So I I, I sort of fell in love with nature there, and then the, the coastline was all about family sort of holidays at the beginning southwest france down here in cornwall a lot um, and it was surfing that sort of connected the environment with also a love for sport i sort of quickly fast forwarded then but i i've always been a sort of a sports sports person as yeah. it were. L- was a big runner at school um and i fell in love with sort of surfing and waves as a i don't know Sort of ten year old, I suppose. How did you?
0: Was that from holidays? Yeah,
1: from my my parents taking right. me, and then I quickly, as you know, as more and more sort of holidays happen, more beach excursions where that was coupled with you know, you know, was it what bodyboarding, surfing, and and catching whatever animals I could in rock pools and right. all of that sort of normal stuff. Yeah. To um to then. F- f- at about 16, absolutely falling in love with Southwest France, which we've been going to for a long time as a family, spending a lot of time there. And then sort of connecting with a lot of local kids in Cap Breton.
0: and, and That's a nice proving ground in your uh, teens. Yeah, and becoming, becoming
1: effectively a, 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 an absolute Francophile and almost rejecting my own English heritage. Right. And spending every waking moment of my life trying to get back there or being back there okay um and so i spent a lot of time surfing there i worked at different surf competitions you know the rip curl pro and the quicksilver junior pro and stuff where you know i, I met surfers who i know to this day people like eagle mark harris and and sean harris and you know gabe davis all sorts of people um and it's a place that's super close to my heart and a place that you know surfing went from being a you know a, a real interest to being an absolute passion did that open
0: your eyes to like oh, actually this could become a, a lifestyle this could be how i could make probably got yeah. like you live in, but you know like it broadened your horizons to that extent
1: i don't, I don't think i ever t- totally <clears throat> envisaged that i would make any as it were money or career out of, uh, of being involved with surfing. And I'm not sure directly that I sort of, as it were, make any money out of surfing now. Um, but well, I definitely don't make any money out of my surfing.
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean though? Like you, um, you saw there was a, a, an industry and there's was more than just the act of surfing. it's like a way of life that you could follow.
1: Well, let me, let me tell you the sort of the, the journey, the, the journey after that, I, I was a, a absolutely hell-bent on being a vet for many years okay and then when i fell in love with france and a lot, the language just landed on me and i was you know i speak fluent french and i i i love the language i'm an absolute francophile i, I then diverted quickly at, at a level afterwards and i did chemistry biology and french of all things so i scrapped I scrapped my physics and I was like this is like a weird combo but this is what I'm going to do did that and then I went on to study French and philosophy at Exeter University I chose Exeter in the southwest close to one of my favorite waves up in Croyd easy to and fro yeah great university um and then I went left university and I um Went to London, started in sort of ethical PR companies of all things, but also coupled that with some additional studies at Birkbeck University. Um okay. ecology and
0: conservation. Right. And So uh, this interest was also developing concurrently yeah. with, with the surfing and, right. and, and
1: so actually what I found is a reconvergence of all of the threads of my life with SAS.
0: Right. France, it sounds it sounds that way. France,
1: yeah, surfing, yeah. nature. Yeah. It, it it was like unbelievable. I, I now, you know, have to do business trips down to Southwest France. A lot of the, my friends in those formative years work in surf companies, you know, in silver yeah. and rip curl and all sorts of companies. So it was an amazing, uh, an amazing sort of
0: reconvergence of all of my passions. But those things don't happen by accident. I don't, I don't think so. Was, was, were you always, it sounds like to me, you are always somebody that was actively looking for involvement, you know, like in in whatever in yeah. way you could. Yeah. Um, so, how did that manifest itself? But I,
1: I took that active involvement. I, I saw it, it didn't. It didn't happen sort of overnight. So, you know, when I was, you know, my, my career has been ethical PR companies, and then I went to work for for Gordon Brown's wife, um, our former uh, Prime Minister Sarah wife, Brown. Sarah Brown, okay. and I ran her children's charity.
0: So, when was this?
1: That was in the sort of early two thousands.
0: So, if we could just look at that a little bit, because that that is a sector, isn't it? Yeah. You know. The charitable sector. Yep. Is that what you would call it? Yeah,
1: that's exactly what you could, the third sector or the charitable sector. And,
0: and, and were you, that was your career path at that point? Yep, That's what you wanted to do? Well, that's, that's what I, yeah, that is what I wanted to do, yeah. And where did that come from?
1: Where did it come from? I think I've always been someone who sort of wanted to do good for people and planet. Right. And I think that that is, that's, that's it. Fundamentally, yeah. I'm sort of somebody, yeah, who wants to, to to, yeah try and do some sort of
0: good okay right so you said ethical PR companies so what kind of work were you doing then
1: well we were working with clients um where ethical is that the right uh trying to think ethical PR yeah we worked with sort of with interesting projects around corporations like the BBC so like good you know solid solid projects we worked with um arts institutions um national gallery
0: um so what, if they, oh, had a pro- if they had a project that they wanted to publicize in a yeah. certain projects, way? projects, events, all okay. sorts of things. So, yeah. So, it's not a world I really know much about, so I'm yeah. just interested, really. Yeah,
1: and that, that, that segued, really, okay. into, into the, 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 the world of Piggy Bank Kids, which was Sarah Brown's charity before it became rebranded to their world. Okay, um, so what uh, was that? It was, cre- it was after they lost their daughter, Jennifer. Um, they they set up this new charity Piggy Bank Kids, to provide opportunities for young people, but also to look into neonatal research to to basically to, to protect you know unborn and very premature babies, um, and um, and I was program director there. For a number of years uh, we create all sorts of projects we did lots of fundraising um, launched a new unit up at edinburgh royal infirmary looking wow. at uh, problems with um, with premature birth um, and solutions so yeah um, very interesting obviously enabled me to meet lots of great people and cut my teeth yeah at the same time as doing that i also uh we want as part of what we did we we, we put books together to raise money so we put a book together called Journey to the Sea, which was sort of came out of my my mind really. Yeah. Um, which was a, an anthology of short stories in and around the sea and the inspiration of the sea. And I got a story written by Alan Weisbecker and I got us who wrote um, In Search of Captain Zero, yep. which you may have read. One, yeah, of, yeah. one of the best surf books out there. One obviously. of the
0: seminal surf books. And
1: um, and then Alex Dick Reed of The Surface, surface Path. I know Alex. Um, yeah good became a very good friend at that time so so we started talking um he was gonna serialize some of the stories from him in the book i had a guy called russell kellen jones um a well shorter right brilliant story for it which was serialized in the surface path and that led at the time alex was living in london he's now in the bvis um we used to meet up for lunch regularly and have a chat okay and he said to me do you want to do you, do you want to come on board as a trustee at SAS? Yes, yes. And I've right. been involved anyway in various ways. Okay.
0: Like, so that's the connection. I was like, yeah.
1: Right. Why not? So what's a trustee do? A trustee is effectively the governance of any sort of charity. Right. So they have to sit down once a quarter. They have to look at the strategy, look at the fundraising, look at everything that's going on, make sure that the, uh, the, the goals of the organisation are being met um, and that staff is performing how they should. So I became a trustee. And it wasn't that much further after that that I got a call about the then director, Rich Hardy, leaving. Okay, and that I should interview for the role.
0: Right, the role that you do now. Yeah. Okay.
1: And the rest is history.
0: Yeah. Really. So there's a nice line, isn't there? Nice progression in your career. You know, all the all the things that you've learned. There, and... There's a potted history. There's a you know
1: couple of stages in between that when we when we sort of left London and stuff. There was, I mean, there was there were parts. Um, you know, I did other jobs after Piggy Bank Kids, Stop Climate Chaos Coalition, some time with the Wildlife Trusts, and then when we knew we were having our son Darwin, um, some ten years ago, we left London, and that went hand in hand with getting this job. Okay, and moved down here, and yeah, and the rest is is it really, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So it sounds like the creative part of this is 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 something that you're very involved with. You know, the the <laughs> anthology that you talked about, and there's a big element of of creativity it seems to me in the way like we touched upon earlier that you try and get the messages across is that something that you're involved with hands on
1: I, I would you know we're we're a really small organization you know and I'm very proud of what we do and what we on the resources we have available to us but um my hand has to be involved in almost everything we right. do, from the copy that goes out to the images that are produced, to the obviously the strategy that we're undertaking and the areas we focus on. So, so yes, there is a big, there is a big piece of quality control that needs to happen to make sure that we're you know we're putting the right stuff out there that is is helping us on our mission. So yeah, I'm, I'm I suppose I'm fairly creative or good at putting the right creative people around me on on projects yeah i'd like to think you know i think my role is is very much about is creating sort of leaders and leadership around me okay even at this scale i can't i just can't do everything i I ran out of time a long time ago do you find that easy to, Um, to give up that element of control not always but um but yeah i mean generally it's great to see people succeeding yeah you know so so it's it's all it's all good you know we're a a great charity we've got lots of people doing great work i can't be the eyes and ears at every beach but i can help uh, empower people to do what they want to do to protect their beach whether that's people here and as sort of my paid staff or whether it's our volunteers and i think that's really important and that probably in a nutshell describes why i love this organizations so much because it's about those people and their interaction with the planet it's not just about the planet yeah it's not just about the people it's about that tidal zone that intertidal zone where those two things meet yeah and people and planet sort of really truly merge yeah so so it's sort of exciting from that point of view it's a lot more hard work than i ever thought it would be i think people probably assume that because we're surfing against Sears, there's a lot of surfing that can go on on any <laughs> given day and the reverse couldn't be more true the amount of days i'm on a train at five o'clock in the morning to go to another meeting in london to raise the money to make sure that we can carry on doing what we're doing is is unbelievable but it's uh you know it's a it's a great privilege really to be able to do that
0: are, so, you, are you comfortable with talking about the fundraising side of, of Surface against sewage like how, how it's funded yeah so how does that work we're a, we're a membership driven organization um
1: and uh, we probably get about 40% of our income from membership subscriptions. So, those people are, you know, they're, they're probably, I would more accurately describe them as regular donors, people who want to say, look, we're supporting the cause and the campaigns that we want to see um, happening around the country. So, yeah. you know, a membership infers that people get something back and they may get pipeline and a sticker and various other benefits. But a donation is about somebody saying, I want to put my money into something that I believe in. Yeah. And that's really where we're at today. Um, we work with, as a charity, we we access money through trusts and foundations. So we, we work with various big and small tra- foundations around the, the country. We get some corporate money too. Um, we reject some corporate money too.
0: Right. So there's money that we haven't wanted to or been able to take. Okay. Um, Strategically and, and because of what it would yeah the tobacco Uh,
1: industry would be one good one we got offered a lot of a lot of money really i would say no thanks
0: do they see that as a pr thing sounds like they must do just like oh there's a there's a trendy course and you know
1: cigarette butts are are one of the most they're the most widely littered item yeah but
0: well in the mountains i mean it's it's hideous yeah so
1: um and uh, we you know have people running marathons giving us donations doing you know um cake stores, all sorts of things. I mean, as a charity, we take pride in making sure that we put the maximum amount of that money to the front line. So we we put about 90% to the front line. So we have very little on there, the overheads, as it were, which is the way it should be.
0: Are you comfortable in that, in that I guess, lobbying world, is it, if you could characterise it that way, where you sometimes have to go up against companies like tobacco companies or, you know, to, to use the phrase again, vested interests that don't particularly like the message can that is that a difficult part of your job to 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 deal with those relationships
1: i think we're more and more used to it and it's it's always more subtle than a dark art than than people sort of imagine and you get lobbied all over the place in terms of corporates trying to spin you in different directions but is
0: that a big part of your job to to kind of be the person that that you know um What's the word I'm looking for? You know, goes through those those relationships and works out what's best for Surface gun Sewage.
1: Yeah, I do it with my trustees, with my team. But yeah, I, I would I would have a lot of those conversations. I think the key is that you stick to your guns based on the facts that you've assessed properly. So, you know, where the facts of plastic pollution ring very true on something like deposit return systems, the recycling stats and the potential for better performance, the potential to better protect our beaches, you know, we can easily see where drinks companies might be trying to lobby against it and try and spin it away and put the responsibility not on the company, but on the individual your consumer saying you must not litter you must recycle more and actually it's up to them to give the systems to the people who are consuming their products so yeah. you know it, it's not this is why often i get quite cross about the litter bug you know um, characterization because it's something that plays into the hands of the corporates which is the whole litter problem or plastic problem is about littering communities and people and they should be responsible for it and it's up to the companies who are making the vast profits from these products to put some of those profits back to protect the environment that's being littered you know it's not not about creating another marketing campaign that says you know mr smith is the litter bug on his street
0: yeah okay So what's the most difficult part of what you do?
1: Um, The fundraising is always challenging because it takes a lot of energy and effort and you've got to create the right pipeline of opportunities. Um, HR is always a difficult thing. Whenever you're dealing with more than one person, that person being (laughs) yourself, you're dealing with different personalities, different timeframes, different expectations. And so You've got to mesh all of those things together, so so that can be challenging. But uh, in the big scheme of people doing jobs that they love or don't love, I'm probably in the top fractional part of, of percentile yeah. of of being able to do what I do. So yeah, so yeah, I'm very proud of of, of what we do, and you know the challenges are uh, you know the challenges are actually probably what make you stronger.
0: Really? Okay. I mean, it's interesting because I was going to ask you. It's probably quite a glib question, but I was going to ask you does it ever get overwhelming you know because this task that you've set for yourself the task that this organisation has is 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 i mean it's beyond enormous something like the plastic yeah. campaign that does that ever seem just like the most ridiculously ambitious thing does it ever get overwhelming to you or or are you, is it just the goal is always the thing
1: I think you just got to remain optimistic and confident. And as long as you're sure that you're, as long as I'm sure that we're doing as much as we can with the resources available to us, then I'm, then I'm, then I'm comfortable with that. We may not, we may not succeed ultimately, even in my lifetime. You know, I may be long gone before plastic pollution is properly solved or there's a new material, but I would have been part of the movement towards the tipping point that created that outcome that what, I can feel proud of.
0: I was. Well, that's the next question. What What are you proudest of then? on all the projects that you've worked on? Do you on? know what probably I'm proudest of, and
1: I think SAS should be proudest of, is the Global Wave Conference that we created uh, in 2015.
0: A couple of years ago, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: because out of that has come so much. So what you see with something like Parley for the Oceans and what they're doing with Greg Long and Ramon Navarro and the WSL and lots of the connections they've had, came out of the came out of the um the global wave conference lots of individual group efforts on the ground have come out from events so what like was it what
0: what was the idea behind that i mean it, it marks 25 years did it well no it was it was an event
1: that had happened uh, f- three or four times before and um, that brings together the the sort of enviro surf groups of the world um and i we 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 were sort of got the rights to host it in the uk okay and i um wanted to broaden it out to bring in you know bigger groups and organizations and experts to come in and share the platform with us and we had two days of conferencing down in Cornwall, and we brought in tom curran and greg long and ramon navarro and brad gerlach and scientists and all sorts of experts for an amazing two days of conferencing and then we had a day up in westminster where all of the surfers came to the 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 houses of parliament we had a big reception there and it was cool to see everyone in that place, and it felt very energizing for everyone. So it wasn't about SAS per se; it was about the movement and the sector growing. Okay, and we saw lots of spin-offs coming out of that, and, right? Um, directly and indirectly, which um, which I've, I'm really proud of. But but yeah, lots of lots of amazing campaigns that have gone on over the years um, organizationally. and I'm I'm pretty proud to to hopefully carry on that tradition.
0: So to somebody that's listening to this, and I think we can assume they've got an interest in, in surfing or or the environment generally, how how can they, how can they help? How can they get involved? Um, For me,
1: I would always go, I would always look at the the, the sort of the principle of, of what we do with our regional reps, really, which is we never treat them as a uniform character. So they all have different skill sets, they all have different interests, and so they'll all be good and be able to commit to different things. Um, some will be amazing at organizing beach cleans some won't want to organize beach cleans at all they'll want to do some lobbying with us or they'll be very good at communicating and do some media work with us and so it's you know find a cause that you're passionate about and and give back if you want to get in touch with SAS there's all sorts of things people can do with us and our regional reps in terms of campaigning they can deliver a plastic-free community with us they could come to Westminster with us on a campaigning action there's lots of opportunities um, you know, give back to... to- to the Enviro surf NGO, it's not just us, but we're a, we're actually not a really well-resourced sector. So, you know, the, the surf industry doesn't give a huge amount to, to any organisation globally, um, and membership really counts. So see your membership as part of your voice to protect the beach, to maintain that campaigning effort that is there year in, year out, to represent you in parliament or in Europe or at your beach or give you the advice. It doesn't... It sort of doesn't sort of happen by itself. Um, and take notice of what's around you. Take notice of what's happening at your beach. See you the plastic pollution problem write a letter to your mp if there's something you don't like take that sort of activism i think we've got to revert again from this sort of world of a lot of stuff happening in the social media bubble where we're all talking to the same people we always talk to to actually going how do i break out of that and one of the ways you can break out of that is to go back to traditional methods you know write that letter actually email that mp with a an email that you've composed for them not cut and pasted from some you know some sort of bot bit of software and, and make it into something that's really your personal story. Those can resonate and create change much more than people think, you know, they can really cut through same with corporate. So if there's things you don't like, let people let people know, but let people know in sort of a nice, nice way. Yeah. You don't have to shout and swear positive, or be nasty. Right? Be positive. Say you've noticed something and you want to suggest a solution or why is this that you're really disappointed and can, can you work together with somebody to make a change? And I think that, that, that is the right way to go.
0: So it sounds like a lot of your work is harnessing those, yeah. those those different opportunities always, yeah, yeah, always, so how about surfing these days? I surf as much as I can
1: in between a busy family life, yeah, with my son who's almost ten, and I run his football
0: team too Oh do true Tigers why do you life. keep busy.
1: So, so that's that's
0: interesting. How the how the Tiger Sharks doing?
1: They're they're just about to enter their first league. So last year was there. they had lots of friendlies. They did pretty well. I've got a good team, a great motley crew of kids. Brilliant. Who I've got a lot of time for. And so um so looking forward to them doing the league. And I, I run it for fun. If they win or lose, I say to them, "Look, you can lose and have a load of fun, and you can win and not have fun too. So just just have fun the whole time. Make sure that you're enjoying the experience, and yeah. the ride, because you know there's you know I don't want to I don't want to be like the pushy, shouty coach from the side right. who makes the kids upset because it can you know it can distract them from sport for the rest of their lives if you do that
0: okay Um, right but um
1: i digress um and then i I surf when i can so here i I drive past my favorite surf spot pretty much every morning perampore droskin i'm a goofy foot i love the the left at mid tide it is is absolutely the place that i've had some of my best rides in the uk yeah and uh yeah i really really love that wave um and all around here north coast south coast you know i love those little south coast winter sessions you know the places in you know near st Austell that i'll drive down to 20 minutes from my house have a cold winter session and then head home and light my wood burner nice. and have a cup of tea and you know it's uh actually weirdly we're in august now and i i was just talking to my wife about how much I'm looking forward to the sort of September, October, November time. I like the autumn. I love the the seasons of flux and change. I love the the logs getting into the shed. I love the wood burner being lit for the first time. And I love the, the t- dependability of the autumn, really, as opposed to, you know, the summertime, which is always hit and miss as we've seen these last few days here. You know, always a bit of a letdown. Whereas the yeah. autumn, whatever you get is it like a bonus. You get a great sunny day. It's coupled with that crisp sort of, First, sort of that, that slight nip in the air. Get so the, the as well. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. So I, I love that time of year. Um, and you know, there's so much variety here in Cornwall, wave-wise. Um, that's, when,
0: that's when Cornwall's at its best. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the best time to come down here. Absolutely. Isn't it? Yeah.
1: And so, you know, I'm not like I I I I'm a, a highly average surfer, but I often Aren't say, we all? Uh, yeah, I, I often <laughs> say to people like, well, there's no given right for how much you enjoy it, to how good you are. It's like just because you know, you know, Greg Long, who you know I would count as a friend, you know, just because he surfs 30 foot waves and is a, a, an amazing surfer doesn't mean you know fundamentally that i can't enjoy it as much as he enjoys it when i'm out at three foot pen chewing in 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 midwinter
0: well how often do you see a really good surfer just look like he's not having a laugh you yeah. know because they're yeah. taking it so seriously yeah. and they get so aggressive or
1: yeah you know we see it all too often down here sadly so yeah try and you know keep 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 it fun and just just enjoy it and um and yeah i get in as much as i can um, whether it's on my shortboard hand plane or on a foamy in, in one and a half foot waves. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, whatever I can. Nice. But definitely not in any waves that Greg would surf because because I, I don't do anything big. <laughs> no, I think, that, I
0: think they can they can keep those can keep those on. Yeah. Um, well, that's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. Cool, um, thank you. Yeah, 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 me too. I hope the jet lag's not been too too much to deal with.
1: No, it's, it's just about all right. I think I, I would have shaken it by after tonight. So. Yeah. It
0: should be okay. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. No worries. Thank you. No worries. Yep. Told you that one was particularly inspiring. And uh, since we recorded the episode, which which, like I said at the start, was probably about four months ago now, conversations moved on even further with another victory being won, well, partially by Hugo and his team with the news that the deposit return scheme is now under public consultation from DEFRA, which in, in a large part is because of the actions of Surfers Against Sewage. So if you want to get in, involved, then I implore you to go and check out the work done by SAS uh, in more detail. Head on over to their website, www.sas.org.uk to find out how you can get involved in whatever way works for you. You'll see there's a huge raft of uh, activities organized by that organization and you can uh, yeah, you can, you can can get stuck in and, and make a difference through those guys. So thanks for coming on the show, Hugo. I really enjoyed that chat. And uh, yeah, good luck. Okay so housekeeping corner. So I'm happy to say that the merch designs are in. Uh, my design and photography compadre Owen has come up trumps yet again with some designs for mugs and t-shirts and uh, yeah they're, they're really great as expected so I'll post them on Instagram or something when I get around to it. The next stage is actually making them available to you the great looking sideways listing public. Uh, must be honest no idea when that's going to happen. A kind listener, Jonathan Davis, at Lined Up, did get in touch to offer an offer to set up a Shopify thing for me completely for free, which was uh, very generous of him. Thanks a lot for that, Jonathan. The issue I've got, as usual, is I've got no time to look, into getting, to look into how you get the things actually made right now before I even get around to the Shopify thing. Should hopefully have some time in December, so maybe I'll try and check it out then. But if anyone out there does have any idea then hit me up, podcast at wearelookingsideways.com. Any advice most welcome. Um, I should also say, I've had a few people asking me about the little theme tune that bookends each episode of the show. That was performed for me by my friend Matt Ward, a talented artist, musician and illustrator and professional grumpy bastard, I don't think he'd mind me saying, who goes by the name of Linguistine and who you can find at www.linguistine.com. So basically, before I put the first episode out, I thought oh theme tune that's probably a good idea and i grabbed uh, a bewildered looking matt who happened to be in my office at the time basically said well, gave him a guitar and basically said right make some up now and that was literally the first thing that he came up with so i was like nice and we recorded it through the built-in mic on my computer and there we go took about five minutes and uh i think it's uh i think it works really well so I mean, he he can't even remember how to play it, which is pretty funny, but yeah, thanks, Matt. A little tea break well spent there, I think. And on a similar note, I should mention my two muckers, Scott Nixon and Chris Cracknell, who are taking it in turns to provide me with post-production support and make the often shockingly recorded conversations into the listenable chunks that you you hear and enjoy. If you go over to my uh, SoundCloud page, you can find links to what those boys do. So check them out. They're both very talented, both legends and are very worthy of your support. Okay. Cheers all. That's another episode wrapped. Um, Yeah. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll be back next week with another one. So uh, cheers for listening. Nice one.